them. While your day is winding down, they're just getting started. This is South Coast Tonight with Chris McCarthy and Marcus Farrow. They've got you covered on all the news of the day. From local issues to politics on both sides of the aisle. This is the place where the movers and shakers come to be heard. To listen. And where they're held accountable. This is South Coast Tonight on WBSM. Welcome back to South Coast Tonight. I want to thank uh, Fairhaven Select Board members Leon Corey and Stacia Powers for, for joining me for that first hour to talk about the Prop 2.5 override. Uh, I, like you, am a taxpayer in Fairhaven and uh, obviously want to make sure that um, you know this, this, this uh, money would be spent responsibly. And I think that uh, they provided a lot of clarity to a situa- to the situation, and uh, I think they're going to be back uh, sometime in the near future uh, before the election to to, to give their pers- uh, to sort of you know uh, set the record straight once again you know or to take calls, hear your questions, and give their opinion on where the the two and a half you know uh, give their uh, their perspective on why this is necessary. So I want to thank them again for for coming on. I thought it was a great segment, and I want to thank you all for for you know, tuning in, calling in, et cetera, and sending us messages on the app chat. So, um, we see, I see some calls on, I'll take them later. Um, I got a, we got a guest. We have Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro joining us. Hey, Sheriff. Hey, Marcus. How's it going? Good. Um, so, uh, I saw you today, uh, at the main campus in Dartmouth. You, um, had your first 100 days press conference. Um, my, uh, summation of it is, you know, you wanted to uh, release the, the, the suicide report, uh, showcase the suicide resistant um, beds, and sort of just talk about the changes that you've made in the department in your first 100 days in office. Is that more or less? Yeah, that's it. I mean, we could have talked about a lot of the other things that we've done. I mean, there's been a lot. I, uh, I thought about that, how like the depth of like the how deep that conversation could have gone. And because we talked about a lot of stuff, the programming and all of that. We didn't really get like too deep into recruitment efforts and, and, a, and a bunch of other stuff. There's there there. You guys are doing quite a bit. Oh, yeah, that's certainly true. And this was um, th- what we did was highlight the big things. But they, Jonathan Darling and uh, Hadley Zippel, my aide, they um, probably came up with a list of a couple dozen things that we've been working on over the last three months and they decided to, you know, they, they put the presentation together, big, big ticket items that we're working on, certainly closing Ash Street and uh, the suicide issues, um, you know, the inmate services, like a lot of these, big, these are the big ticket items that we've, and there's a lot that's involved with these things. A lot of these things are going to take a lot of time to pull off, but every one of those things is achievable. Well, I want to start with. Um, I had a chance to look at the suicide report uh, a little bit before the before the show. I didn't get t- too deep of a dive into it yet. I haven't had the time. I'm I'm going to. But um, before we get to the suicide report, 
and and the beds. I wanted to talk about your new plan to close Ash Street, which seems to be something that can be done internally and uh, cheaply. That's that's correct. I would say relatively cheaply compared to the other things. So I, this is my third way that we could close Ash Street in three months. And somebody might say, well, what is he talking about? Does he know what he's doing? He comes up with three different plans in three months. Yeah. It, it's actually the opposite. It's like that, that. It's just a little bit of creativity and a little bit of caring. You can come up with a lot of different uh, solutions to different problems. So, you know, I've been here three months, and I've come up with three different ways that we could close Ash Street. One of them would cost about $10 million, Another would cost about 6 to $8 million. And then the third way, um, we, it would cost probably around a million and a half dollars, a little bit over that, but we have that money in-house. And it, at its core, what it is, is I asked uh, several staff, security staff and classification, to assume that all of the cells in J, um, Dartmouth can be locked. And I said, okay, if we can clo- lock all the cell doors, can we close Ash Street? And they said, oh, absolutely, definitely. And I said, okay, let me, let, me, let me scale this back, tighten it up a little bit. If we can lock, you know, the, uh, cell units in just uh, GA, GB, and then EB, those are just three different places, and EB is actually females. Uh, but I said, if we just, you know, lock cells in GA and GB, can we close Ash Street? And they looked at it, and they said, they came back to me a couple of days later and said, yeah, we could do it. I said, great, that's what we're going to do then. We're going to... Uh, take the canteen money, million and a half dollars, one point six million in canteen money. That was basically the profits from uh, what inmates had been paying over many, many years. It's cumulative, and that money has to be spent on inmates. So what we're going to do is put toilets in cells, and when we put toilets in cells, which is the big expensive project, we can then lock the doors. And uh, you know, because we can't lock a cell door unless it has a toilet in the cell. So this was the third way that we could close that street. The other two uh, options are still possibilities, but they're just more expensive. So I found an even cheaper way of doing this. And, you know, this is this is probably the fastest and cheapest way to do it. Probably take a couple of years. Uh, we'll have to put, like I said, toilets and cells and locks on doors in several of the housing units. Um, but once we do that, we can, uh, well, then we also have to address the regionals. But that's, a fairly low-hanging fruit. That's not going to be a really complicated project to address. But once we do that, we'll be able to bring the inmates um, from Ash Street to Dartmouth and then close it. And our timeline is probably around two years, give or take a little bit. Sounds like a no-brainer then uh, compared to the other options. Oh, definitely, yeah. This one, the other two options, I would need to get money from the state to retrofit different areas of our property to... um, um, you know, create single cells. Yeah. And so this option basically made, we already have the cells, you know, constructed, but we just can't, because of housing issues with gang, you know, like the way we house inmates because of gang issues and, and complications with enemy issues. And sure. if, like sometimes even staff issues, you know, we can't just put inmates anywhere. They, where we place inmates, is there's actually kind of a science to that. And so there's a lot of experience, a lot of things we have to do. But once we can lock our cells, and, and about half of our cells at Dartmouth don't even lock, the entire women's center, the cell doors don't lock. You know, yeah. they're locked inside the building. But inside the building, for the most part, they have, uh, you know, kind of free reign of it. And so it's just incredible that somebody ever designed a, a jail that didn't have locking doors. I mean, that person should never get a contract again. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I had a I had, I had clients in the women's center, and the it was the getting into getting into the visitation center at the women's center versus the the main campus is is entirely different. It, it is a little oh, yeah. bit seems a little yeah. more laissez faire. Yeah, exactly. I mean, women can't get out of the building. You know, there's a secure perimeter around yeah. it. Um, but you know, in, getting into it is a little bit easier, and it's. Um, but you know, there's uh, there's a lot of problems with the security, the way, as you just described it yourself, it's laissez-faire. You know, and so, like I said, a little bit of creativity, a little bit of caring, and we can come up with multiple solutions to the same problems. I mean, that's what I've done. I've, I've come up with a, a third way to close Ash Street. So. You know anybody who you know like oh it might have said oh we you know can't close the ashtray it's you know can't, it's not possible it's not it's, it was possible I've come up with three different ways to do it so um, you know so we're, yeah we're going to pursue this one we are working with DCAM you know we, we being the jail and uh, you know Chris Horta the maintenance director is working with DCAM to start the process to basically you know in the near future we're going to be reconstructing the cells and putting toilets in them and that way we can lock the doors and. You know, then we can bring everybody back from Ash Street. All right. So DCAM is the Division of Asset Capital Maintenance and Management, I believe, is the acronym. It's the state. Yeah. It's it's a it's a state um, department. And you originally wanted DCAM to do a feasibility study for one of your other plans, but now you have to work for DCAM. But you don't need an earmark in the you you work with DCAM, but you don't need an earmark in the legislature for that. I would still like the other study to be done, which is a space needs assessment. So that even though this is a new plan to close Astrid, the space needs assessment is still probably a good idea. Uh, it hasn't been done in probably decades. And so that is something I would still like to see go forward. We still should construct a more single cells inside the jail. That's probably still a good idea to do that because even if we were to lock all of the doors, we don't have a lot of single cells. A lot we have a lot of doubles, a lot of dormitory style, but we don't really have um, single. And single are important because some people need to be kept in a single cell. So we're speaking with Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro. He just had his 100 days press conference earlier today, and so you're saying now this is the plan. You're moving forward with it. You're going to work with DCAM. You still want to do that other feasibility study, but this seems like a no brainer. It's co- it's more cost effective than the other plans, and you can get it done faster. Um, so what happens when Ash Street's closed? Like, how do you how do you? Is there an official like sheriff pro- proclamation? Do you stand outside and say, "I hereby close Ash Street"? How does that how is that process going to work? Probably just notify the state. You know, bring bring all the operations back over from Ash Street to Dartmouth. Although the civil division, we would probably leave in that the old sheriff's house up front, so that probably won't uh, change. You know, because that is a separate building, and with it being a separate building, we don't really. You know, we could close Ash Street proper, leaving that open, so that way we still have the civil division operating out of there. Otherwise, we'd have to find space for the civil division back on the Dartmouth campus, which is nothing we couldn't handle. We could well, couldn't couldn't the state just say no? We don't like get, like because that's part of the building, isn't it? The sheriff's quarters, right? You're talking about the sheriff's quarters, isn't that part of the building? The, the sheriff's quarters is actually a separate building. Oh, you know, okay. The two buildings are connected through, uh, you know, doorways and stuff. But they, they, you know, you could actually tear down one or the other. Not that I'm advocating for that, but you know, you or you could let's put it like this: you could repurpose one or the other. 
without really interrupting the other. So they, they're two distinct buildings. What are, um, I know we've talked about this, but uh, it's worth mentioning again since we're talking about this. What are some of the advantages of closing Ash Street? Uh, Ash Street has 100 inmates that are basically occupying 200,000 square feet, which is a terrible waste of resources yeah. because you you're maintaining and paying utilities and staffing 200,000 square feet of uh, of building for 100 inmates, which is just terribly inefficient. So the so that's one thing is the, there's cost savings on doing this, uh, you know, shutting down Ashtree and bringing the uh, people back to Dartmouth. That's one thing is the cost savings. The other thing is what it does for the inmates. It, with the inmates, it will also allow for more programming for them because there's a lot more programming hours at Dartmouth than it is at Ashtree. And then the third thing is just the consolidation of COs. So if we, there's about 50 or so, probably 45 or 50 uh, correctional officers um, at um, the, uh, sorry, let's get a message. Um, my phone started with that. So there's probably about, um, you know, 45 to 50 correctional officers at Ashtree, you know, maintaining that area. So if we brought the, those COs back to Dartmouth, that would be a boost for the staffing problems we have at Dartmouth. It would make for uh, available more programming available at Dartmouth. Um, you know, it would decrease uh, forced overtime. So there's, there's a, you know, there are some correctional officers who have said, if you shut down Ash Street, I am going to quit. I'm retired. I'm out of here. To which I say, okay, well, thank you for your service. I like I can't make a management decision on with a gun to my head. That's just not how it works. Yeah. You know, so I'm, I'm so I'll be sorry to see those correctional officers go, but you know, closing Ash Street is the right thing to do for a lot of reasons. I, I can't possibly keep Ash Street open because it's a better work condition for some COs who don't want to go back to, you know, Dartmouth, which is just a bigger, more complicated operation. Um, so Ash Street is, you know, like it, it, it will be closing and, you know, if that there's a possibility we will lose some correctional officers, but that's, that's unfortunate, but that's, you know, what, you know, the decision I've made. So, um, the other uh, thing you're talking about programming. So uh, recently, you know, we had reached out and you'd explain this uh, today, but we had reached out uh, earlier in the week because um, we had heard that you were going to cut some program, some of the outside programming uh, that your predecessor, Sheriff Hodgson, had always, you know, it, it frequently touted the Are You OK program, which is uh, you're looking to transfer somewhere else. You don't want to end it. But the Are You OK program, the um the 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 um comfort dog program the um uh slam tours and a few others there's some program you know sheriff hodgson believed and i think in a more expansive view of the sheriff's office than you do um and you're 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 either shuttering or transferring these programs uh out um can you explain a little bit uh, about like why you're doing that and which programs are you Transferring, which ones are you just shutting out, uh, shut, uh, shutting down? Yeah, so the, the programs that, that you just mentioned, they have nothing to do with running a jail, nothing at all. And the jail needs the resources brought back inside because the jail is starving for uh, resources like staff and money. The Are You Okay program is basically a full-time business, a full-time staff member who is calling a list of 135 um, senior citizens. 135 senior citizens. It's not something that it was thousands upon thousands of 
uh, people. You know, I, that's what I, I thought it might have been was, you know, a lot, a lot. It wasn't. It was 135 was what the caseload was. So that, are the, an are you okay program really is something that a council on aging should be doing, not a sheriff's office. Our job is care, custody, control, and rehabilitation of inmates. That's what we do. Um, now, we, it, it, did, was Hodgson wrong for doing that program? No, he was not. He, he is, as a politician, you can pursue any policy matter area that you want. And that's where he, he chose to pursue. That's his right as a politician. And I'm not going to second guess that or judge it. That's his right. I don't want to pursue stuff that doesn't have anything to do with the jail, certainly not right now. The jail needs a lot more resources. It's, you know, it's starving uh, for more staff. It's starving for more support staff. So, you know, Are You Okay is one program that um, we're not going to be doing anymore. The Comfort Dog program. Okay, why are we? Why do you have? A well, you said with the Are You Okay program, though, you're looking to see if there's a council on aging or a police department that will take on take it on, right? That's right. Because you have 100. Yeah, I know you said you had 135 seniors. I happen to know some of them do listen to this program, so uh, I was just wondering. You're you're looking to so so your your hope is that these seniors will have that access to that program just from another department or, or organization, basically. That's that's correct. Yeah, okay. it's, just, it's it's not the job of the sheriff's office. To check in on senior citizens. That's that's. I understand. That's beyond, that's beyond the scope of what I think our mandate should be. Now, as a politician, Sheriff Hodgson was perfectly within his right to do that. But when you do something that's beyond the scope of running a jail, you're stretching yourself a little bit thin. And so, you know, it, so that's one thing. But like I said, this is one staff member calling 135 people. This is a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. But now we have the Comfort Dog program. Now, each canine costs around, you know, maybe $130,000, $140,000 a year. I don't think that's been said publicly before. But the what? canine, uh, yeah, each dog is about $130,000 a year. How? I, um, because the staff member that... Um, oh, okay. That, 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 that's a big ex- part of the expense. The yeah. Probably seventy, eighty, not possibly $90,000 for the staff member's salary. And then you have the extremely expensive vehicle, the Ford F-150 or sometimes the 250, you know, those vehicles that are constantly running because they're climate controlled and the dogs have to be in those when they're not being used somewhere else. So you have like a moving kennel and those vehicles are upwards of seventy or $80,000 when they're outfitted and they only last two or three years. They don't last a long time. And then you have the, uh, you know, the veterinary bills. We had one ridiculous veterinary bill recently for one of our dogs which I, I, you know, I'm, I'm not too happy about this. I don't think it was something the jail should have paid for. Um, but one of the dogs had uh, eaten a basketball because the handler left the basketball in the crate with the dog and the dog ate the basketball. So that's something that's beyond the scope of work. That's not, you know, so I, we ended up paying the bill and we found out about it. I, I found out about it afterwards, but I would have pushed back on that had I known in advance because that was poor management of the handler and you know so if the, if the handler have should have the handler should have paid the bill yeah i think so i yeah. actually think so you know I'm, I'm sure they're not going to be happy to hear me saying that but i'm not happy that they poorly managed that animal and the animal ate a, a basketball that's just that's just really bad supervision you know so it's just like if i was driving down the road in my government issued vehicle and i go through um, a, like a traffic camera, you know, I drive through Rhode Island on my way back because I come up 195 through 95 into Attleboro and South Attleboro. So if I go through a traffic camera and I get a ticket 
okay, that's not on the jail to pay that that traffic ticket. That's not my responsibility. That's my like I have to pay that out of my own money, not say, oh, I went through a traffic camera and I'm going to send the bill to the jail. That's not how that works. You know, that right. that's that's my poor driving that would have caused that. And that, just to be clear, this has not happened. But if it did, that's how I would handle it. So so each dog costs about one hundred and thirty thousand dollars. And we have, you know, one hundred forty thousand, one hundred thirty, somewhere around there, as much as one hundred and fifty when you add up all the expenses. So we had three comfort dogs. Why are we spending, you know, four hundred to four hundred fifty thousand dollars sending dogs to public schools? That's ridiculous. Yeah, absolutely ridiculous. I want those dogs sniffing for drugs, you know, detecting drugs when they're coming into the jail, and you know, not not going to a public school, and so the kids can, you know, that's not our job. That's that's way beyond the scope of. What a sheriff's, I mean, now it's really nice for public relations, absolutely. You know, it's like, oh, look at this wonderful program, the sheriff's. I'm not there to run, you know, feel-good programs. That's that's not why I wanted to be sheriff. I wanted to turn a jail system around and rehabilitate inmates. It's, it's a lot more uh, focused and it's a lot more mission-driven. So we're also, you know, getting rid of the Homeland Security program. The Homeland Security program teach it does a lot of different things, but one of the main functions is it goes around to high schools and teaches kids about emergency preparedness. Okay, that's wonderful. Let's have the Department of Homeland Security do that, or the, you know, that's you know, Massachusetts sheriffs. We mainly run jails. You know, I mean, we you can you can do these other things beyond the scope of a jail. That's that's okay. That's not what I want to do. Um, well, you know, oh, the, the SLAM program, and I'll mention that one. Yeah. That's all, I'll stop there because I know you wanted to get back in. But the, the SLAM program is basically a non-aversive scared straight. And we know the research was very clear that scared straight actually made kids worse off. What people didn't, so when, when the research came through about that, getting in kids' faces and screaming at them, trying to scare them from, you know, being involved with a life of crime. So when they found out, you know, researchers found that out, most people start drop those programs, the scared straight programs, but then they move to a non-aversive model, which is, as I understand, what we were doing in, in here it was a non-aversive scared straight model that we called SLAM. The research is still very clear. That still makes kids worse off. So when I found out that we were doing something, like that, I just said, just cancel it immediately. Don't do them anymore. And so that, that was actually very troubling that we were doing that in the first place. So uh, I know that the you bringing those, you know, uh, basically either transferring or, or shuttering these programs is going to give you uh, extra $1.5 million. Um, one of the things that you want to allocate that $1.5 million to is um, a new organizational chart that you revealed today because you've established. Not, so go ahead. Not exactly. Not exactly. That's not what the money is being used for. This is a re- Okay, it's not 1.5 million in savings. In the people that are, their salaries are being spent on this 1.5 million are going to be working inside the jail right now, just not outside the jail. You know, so that that's it's so these all these people are now going to be doing jail function jobs and you know j- jobs that like support the jail rather outside. So the other programs, you know, that reorg. That I have to come up with different funding for. Okay, I understand uh, miscommunication at the at the press conference, but um, so but you did have a reorganization chart, and basically, um, you know, you you've established you you have the you have the framework for that new position of director of inmate services. So, tell us what exactly the director of inmate services is going to do. Um, 
you know, just a rough outline of who's going to be under the director of inmate services and what's the ultimate goal um, that that director of inmate services is going to. Um, what's the ultimate goal of that of that position? Okay, let's go backwards. So the ultimate goal, uh, the last question you asked, is to prioritize uh, inmate services. And there's a lot of different things under inmate services. You've got medical, you've got food, you've got post-release services, which is setting inmates up with housing, health care, and a job. That's post-release. You've got programs that we offer while somebody is locked up, uh, anger management, drug treatment, education, vocational programs. So it's, it's getting all of that under one person. Because right now, it's actually, it, ultimately, all that is under one person. That would all be under me, and it would be the superintendent as well. But the superintendent is spread a little bit too thin. So we have a we have a CFO who deals with all of our financial issues. I have a chief of staff who deals with the personnel issues. I've got a general counsel who deals with those general counsel issues. I've got a superintendent who I want to focus on security issues. And now I'll have an inmate services person to focus on inmate services like programming and food and medical so because right now you have a, a, a superintendent who's focused on security and programming. And those are two completely different jobs, totally yeah. different, totally different mindset, totally different skill set, totally different. You know, it's just, they're diff- just different. So, um, you know, the superintendent hasn't done anything wrong. So I'm not taking stuff away from him because he's, you know, it's just I want to give that to somebody who can make that their sole focus. So they're not supposed so thin. And that way the superintendent can then focus on you know, the security aspects in even greater detail than he was before. Um, one of the things I've come across, a lot of people say at the jail is they're just spread so thin. And it was just programming was not quite, you know, it was it, programming wasn't done, being done in the best possible way. You know, there, there's, a, there's a room for a lot of improvement with programming just like there's room for a lot of improvement with, um, you know, suicide issue, for example. So, um, but the ultimate goal is, because you, you said that, you know, the state's going to essentially, you believe the state's going to actually fund the the extra position, in, the p- extra yeah. positions that you need. You said that they've been good on that, and you've talked to other sheriff's departments um, that said they basically, yeah, just send a bill to the state, they'll pay it. Um, but, uh, the ultimate goal, but, you know, I need to see the ultimate goal is, 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 you know, the inmate services programs, but you or this is in service to reducing the rate of, of reoffending, right? Helping inmates more meaningfully enter society once they are out. Yeah, certainly. Right now we have staff who are providing a service like classification. You know, they, they classify inmates and then they, um, try and set them up with programs. And then they're also, Setting, trying to work on discharge planning and housing, health, you know, housing, healthcare, and a job. That's way too many tasks for staff. It, it, all of those tasks are needed, but when you are doing all those things, you're never specializing in any one of them. And if you're not specializing in the job, like employment services, you're not. If you're not a specialist in employment services, when you're dealing with an inmate, you're not going to be able to do as good a job as somebody who is specializing in employment services for inmates. So what I'm doing is I'm breaking up a lot of these, um, like the classification counselors, into two different jobs where, you know, they're, they're not going to have to worry about reentry anymore. They, uh, you know, we're going to have inmate caseworkers that are going to usher the, um, the inmates through the system so that, you know, so that way the classification counselors don't have to do that. Then we're creating new, I'm creating new positions. 
a housing coordinator, a healthcare coordinator, and a you know employment coordinator, and then they're going to have a several staff under them as well. And then those folks are really going to focus on like the housing coordinator and their staff are just going to focus on housing for inmates after release, and that's all they do. They're not spread too thin. They really they become not only they're not spread thin, they're specialists in that. They've they've got the connections all over the county, and they know how to place people in, in you know homes just after they're being released. Same thing with employment. We want to have people who are real specialists in what they're doing. With employment is tough for somebody with a quarry, um, like a criminal record. Uh, so if you are giving that task to somebody who's doing all these other jobs, I mean, how much of a, how much of expertise do they really have in finding people a job? So that's what I'm doing. Is I'm really, you know, having the staff. Like focus on just the like you know kind of like stay in your lane. Just just do, this is all you have to worry about. Other people will do the housing. Other people are going to do the healthcare. You just focus on employment. You know, and I say they're a different group of people. You guys just focus on housing. But I'm repeat myself now. They become experts at that, and then that's a better service for the inmates. So, um, the last thing I want to talk to you about. Uh, I mean, I, I we could you know. I could, go on forever honestly like i said it, it's a it, it could it can it can there's a lot uh, to talk about but the last thing we have time for is the um the the suicide report that you released um earlier today it's a 65 page report um mm-hmm. my my understanding there's 24 recommendations and the 24th is just that you do all the 23 yeah, uh, that's correct yeah um and so um, I know there's a few, like there's, you know, staff training, intake screening assessment, uh, housing, levels of supervision. Like there's a lot to it. Um, and maybe we can do another segment on that report entirely. But what, what from reading that report, what's your what's your sort of take on the state of, of you know, sui- uh, inmate suicide policy at the, B- uh, at, the, at the Bristol County Sheriff's Office? And how much work do you have ahead of you? We have a lot of work and we're going to, uh, take it on. We're going to do it, and I'll report back on the radio station. But all of the 23 recommendations, you know, plus the 24th is me implementing the stuff. But those, the 23 core recommendations are stuff that are achievable, stuff that we can do. Um, it's. I don't think these things are really going to cost money. I don't. I mean, the the beds. One of the things about the beds is like you know re, the redesign of the bed. It's like ten dollars in material. That's really all it's going to cost to redesign our beds. It's not going to cost a lot of money. We have a thousand beds, um, so that's you know it's a lot of money. But it is basically, um, you know, that is something that we um, you know actually ten ten you know at a thousand beds at ten dollars a bed. It's really only ten thousand. So explain the beds just for people that may not may not have heard the the, the conversation yeah. on in previous shows. Well, why you demonstrated the bed? You had a sheet. Uh, you put on a demonstration of. The the many the myriad ways in which uh, someone could could uh, commit suicide by hanging uh, on the That's old right. bed and the fewer ways it could on the new bed. So just explain the bed situation, why you felt that needed immediate attention. Yeah, the bed situation. So seven out of seven of our last suicides all used a bed to commit suicide. Seven out of seven people who commit suicide all used the bed at Dartmouth. And there were a lot of different choke points, a lot of different ways you can hang yourself using um, the bed frame. And, you know, there were a lot of vertical bars. There were holes that you could loop something through. Um, so these, uh, not this book, not vertical, horizontal bars. I misspoke. Horizontal sure. bars. Actually, there were some vertical bars you could hang yourself on, too, because eventually they hit the bottom of something, and you could use that as a choke point. 
but the um, so that's a real low hanging fruit. It was something that a small team of us got together. We looked at the beds. Each one of us came up with a different aspect of redesigning the bed just by looking at it. We just said, okay, we're, we're just gonna we're just gonna put our attention on this. You know, we're gonna put, use our brains on this project right now, and we came up with a lot of ways we could modify these bed frames. So that's gonna make it a lot more difficult for somebody to use a bed to commit suicide. Is it, is it impossible to? No, you, you, there's lots of ways people can still commit suicide, you know, using a bed or otherwise. Um, but we made it a lot more difficult. We took away a lot of those easy means, like the ladder, for example. A ladder is obviously a way you can, um, you know, because the horizontal bars that you step on, that you can tie something to, and then you tie it around your neck, and then you sit down, and you can choke yourself. So, you know, I redesigned the ladder so that you can't choke yourself on it. And it's not possible for you to tie something around it to choke yourself so there's different things like that we did, you know, the um, the holes, you know, uh, Daryl, the welder at the jail, he uh, came up with uh, using a little like, metal washers to cover up the holes and just weld those on so we can't stuff a rope or a, a rope or a sheet through the um, the holes to tie yourself. So you know, there were different things that we looked at, but that's something that was like low-hanging fruit, really quick and easy for us to address. Um, we have, like I said, about 1,000 beds we have to retrofit at $10 a bed. So that's something that will, it's going to take time just because of the sheer volume of beds, but that's something that we'll be able to do, um, you know, in-house. So we'll be able, that'll make a difference. And there's going to be a whole, there's no one thing that'll make a difference, a whole bunch of things. Well, so, um, uh, Paul, I appreciate you joining me this evening. Um, like I said, I think there's a lot more to discuss, and I know you'll be back on to discuss it, but um, I talked to your public information officer uh, earlier today, and he said that um, you're going to be in... Uh, Quantico and an FBI training. Or are you going to be at the? Uh, you're going to be training with the FBI um, next week. No, not, you- not exactly. It's. It, I will be down at the FBI Academy, but it has nothing to do with the FBI. It has to do with National Institute of Corrections, put on by okay. the Department of Justice. He, he might have they, said that, and I, I just heard something else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They um, they use the FBI Academy because it's a, it's a training facility. Uh, but yeah, I'll be there next week. It's uh, a new. Uh, like said, for new new sheriffs, newly elected sheriffs, it's you know it's a uh, program that the Mass Sheriffs Association asked me if I wanted to participate in. They said it was a big deal to be accepted, and you know they got me into it. And so I said, yeah, sure, why not? I'll go. Um, cool. So, so that's one thing. If you want, I don't know if you saw the news on this, Marcus, but you know the um, the uh, State Attorney General's office has released all the videos for the ICE incident, the 2020 incident. Did you no, know about that? I didn't see that. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. So I've actually watched all of the 30 videos. When did this happen? Uh, yesterday. I, I, oh, yeah, God. So, yeah, so all, there was about 30 different videos. I'm, yeah, so that's why I'm, I'm bringing this to you because I think you'd probably be mad at me if I didn't tell you about <laughs> yeah, this. Right, yeah. So all, I, there were about 30 videos for the May 1st, 2020. I've watched all of them. The general counsel has watched all of them. I mean, if you want to have me back on another time, I'm happy to do that. But yeah. my initial impressions were it wasn't a riot. And it was probably avoidable. You know, those are my first two initial impressions. So, you know, if you want to talk more about it, if you want to, you know, um, you know, dig up the videos. Any chance I could hold you uh, after the break and talk a little bit more about it? Or do you do you have time? No, no, that's fine. I'm just I got to I got to hit a break. Let me hold you and then we'll talk more about that. Okay, cool. All right. And we're back. We're joined by Bristol County Sheriff Paul Harrow. So um, continuing your tradition of breaking some big news on the show. Uh, so you you 
you saw the ice tapes we've been looking for for a while. You saw those ice tapes. You said there wasn't a riot and it was probably avoidable. Can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah. This is the May 1st, 2020 riot that eventually led to Sheriff Hodgson losing his ice contract. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, so I, I saw, I personally saw on the videos, and there was about 30 of them, the behavior of the inmates, I'm sorry, detainees, um, we shouldn't call them inmates because they're not inmates, they're detainees. Um, you know, I saw the videos, I saw their behaviors, and it wasn't a riot. It was um, disorderly at times, it certainly was, um, but it, I wouldn't call it a riot. Um, there was, uh, there were two messes. The first mess was the way the detainees barricaded themselves into the ICE detention center so nobody could come in. They took tables, chairs, washing machine dryers, and they threw all that stuff up against some of the main entrances so the doors couldn't be open. And then they were kind of just hanging out. They were just, I mean, there was, you know, a couple other things that got broken, you know, but it wasn't like they, they were trashing the place. It wasn't quite like that. So, they, you know, just kind of hanging out, waiting, and they, you know, they didn't want to, the detainees didn't want to go from the ICE Center on one part of the campus to the main, I'm sorry, I'm not my daughter. It's okay. Um, so, uh, seems like she always barks on this when I'm on your program. So, um they didn't want to go to the main uh, building where they were going to get a COVID test. So, and that's the part that I say might have been avoidable. Why were we trying to have detainees, uh, uh, you know, move from, you know, instead of bringing, you know, whether it was a 10, 20, or 130 detainees from one location down to Dartmouth, why don't you just bring like two or three nurses up to see them? Um, you know, the whole thing could have been avoided if that was the case. You know, so, um, so when I watched the videos, uh, you know, that's, there was, there's two different operations going on. There's the first management operation to insist that the detainees be removed from the ICE building and brought to Dartmouth main building for COVID testing. That was one decision. And then, you know, there was, there was a lot of, you know, it's kind of at the 10,000 foot level. But then you had the other um, decision to send the COs, the correctional officers in, to regain control of the um, ICE detention center. And during that time with the, you know, I, I've seen the videos. Um, I watched, it was, like I said, it was probably close to 30 of them, and some of them were seven. I took hours and hours watching these videos. Um, like, there's a lot of, like, dead time on them. There's just nothing going on. Um, which is, what, which is what Healy said in the, in the report. So there was there was a lot of dead time. Like they weren't doing much in that interim between the conflict and the between the initial conflict and then the later um, the later conflict, right? Yeah. Well, the, the conflict, the, to be clear, the original conflict was the detainees basically protesting, not rioting. They protested and then they barricaded themselves in. I wouldn't call that a riot. I mean, okay. I just when I when I visualize a riot, I I a very different scenario in my head than what I watched on the video. So I don't think the inmates, I'm sorry, the detainees, they were rioting. I wouldn't define that as a riot at all. Um, so so then, what about when they come in later? What Do you think, was there excessive force use? Because Hodgson says that stuff came out of thin air, basically, that, that, uh, that Attorney General Healy or office was lying about that. Is it your opinion that there was excessive force? He said everybody was out in flex cuffs in ninety, you know, in, in you know, in flex cuffs, and, and basically the whole thing was done in ninety seconds. 
it, okay, for the most part, yes. That for the most part, what Hodgson said, that's mostly true. Okay, that's not all there is to it, though. There were a handful of inmates. Uh, sorry, I keep saying that. My habit. A handful of detainees who were resisting um, being put in cuffs. Now they were being given lawful orders, and you know they were. Uh, so they're supposed to comply, and if they don't, um, the use of force is authorized. But it shouldn't necessarily be the first thing you do. Um, you know, there's, there's ways you can de-escalate a situation, talk people down from things, and I think it was that those de-escalation attempts were probably jumped right over uh, straight to force. And so there was there was one particular. This one really bothered me. There was one uh, gentleman who was, uh, you know, the. Okay, let me set the stage. They were, you know, the the detainees were coming out. Most of them were cooperative. They were, um, you know, kneeling down, faced up against a wall, and you know, I would say the vast majority of them were cooperative like that. There was one person who um, was being ordered to uh, get down on his knees as well, like the other uh, detainees had. But he's like, I got bad knees. I got bad knees. Instead of so, but this this is where it became, um, you know, there was a lot of force. Now, was it excessive force? That probably has to be looked at a lot more closely and a lot more you know, reviewed a lot more than just my one pass through it. So I'm not going to say it was excessive force, but it was certainly still disturbing to me because this one person was screaming, you know, I don't want to get down my knees, my knees, and they were fighting with him and really trying to force him down. Instead of, instead of trying to put him on the ground, have him sit on the ground on his knees like everybody else, they could have just backed him up and sat him down on his butt instead of his knees. And then maybe rolled him over on his chest so he's laying down. You still could have gotten the compliance you needed without, you know, maybe hurting his knees. Now, does this person have a legitimate knee issue? I have no idea. But there was another way to do it. But one of the things that was really disturbing was the way that the, um, and I, I was not okay seeing this, and it won't happen under me, but the way the dogs, um, there, were, there, were, there were two different types of dogs. There was the dogs outside the fence and dogs inside the fence. So the dogs inside the fence all had a muzzle on, and they couldn't bite any of the detainees because they had a muzzle on. Dogs outside the fence didn't have a muzzle on. And those dogs, uh, there was this one particular person, you know, that had the knee issue, allegedly had the knee issue, you know, was being pressed, his face was being pressed up against the metal chain link fence. And a dog was probably... Oh, my know, God. Yeah, it was, that was pretty bad. That, that I was... That's awful. Yeah, it gets worse because then you had a dog, a German Shepherd, um, I think it was a German Shepherd, barking at the, uh, right in his face about 12 inches away, serving absolutely no purpose. No purpose whatsoever, other than to try to, um, you know, like intimidate this detainee. Um, in my opinion, the dog shouldn't have been there at all, period. And that's not going to happen under me. And if anybody does object to that, then we're not going to have a dog program. That's how upset I am about that. And I know some people on the radio are listening to this, but that's how ticked off I am to see the dogs be used on detainees like that. That will never happen. Paul, can I, can I hold you again? Because this is yeah. this is interesting stuff. So I'm going to hold you. I'm going to hold you again. We got to take another break. 1420 WBSM, New Bedford's News Talk Station. You've spent all day hearing about the news. Now is your chance to react to it. Pick up your phone and call the professionals. Call Chris and Marcus now at 508-996-0500. Or send a text via app chat on the WBSM app. Now, back to South Coast Tonight. 
All right, we're here at Bristol County Sheriff Paul Haro. Um, You said that you've seen the ICE tapes from the May 1st, 2020 riot. You said it wasn't, uh, or the, the whatever, conflict um, that caused, eventually that to Sheriff Hodgson losing his ICE contract. You said it wasn't a riot and the situation was probably avoidable. You also said that more or less what Sheriff Hodgson's accounting of is that people were in flex cuffs in 90 seconds in and out was true. But you said there were some incidents of uh, what you saw as excessive force. Somebody being held up against a chain link fence with um, with dogs, I think, is pretty horrifying. But I got to ask you this before I ask anything else. Um, where can people see the tapes? Can you send us the tapes if, if we can't access them publicly? Can you can you email them over to us so that we can we can see them? Yeah, I'll do that through Jonathan Darling, the public relations officer. But um, they were, it was like I said, it's about 30 videos. Some of them are 17 minutes long. Many of them are 17 minutes long. Some of them are a lot shorter. Okay. Um, but yeah, th- this one particular episode with this one person who was screaming, my knees, my knees, I got bad knees, and resisting to go down on his knees. Um, no, let's just assume that's true. Okay, if it's true, you know, we should have been mindful of his bad knees. If it's not true... You know, then we still have to come up with a different way to bring somebody down. Um, that is an excessive force. Uh, but when somebody's face is pressed up against, and th- this guy was in cuffs. I mean, he had to cuff him. His face is being pressed up against a chain link fence. And you, on the other side of the fence, you've got a dog without a muzzle on barking 12 inches from the guy's face. Um, th- there's no legitimate purpose to that. He's there, in cuffs. Nothing- He's in cuffs. Okay, then there's a dog on the 12 inches away from his face, barking, you know, sharp teeth, barking in his face, and he's screaming in agony. There's no legitimate purpose for that, nothing whatsoever. Um, you know, so that was, I think, a clear case of, you know, excessive force. You know, just the, the, the whole thing just went sideways. I mean, I spoke with the superintendent about it afterwards, and he was there. He wasn't there at the beginning of it. You know, he was in meetings, but... Um, you know, later as the as the uh, you know incident 